FM Literature. SAFM Literature is coming to you for the next three hours here on SAFM. Lovely to have you with us on a rather sunnier Cape Town than uh, has been for the last couple of days. So coming to you loud and clear and very sunny. Well, SAFM Literature, the show, as you know, about words and writing and books and reading. And we're going to be hearing from some new voices, some old ones and some winning ones. So team today with me here in Cape Town, I have Albert Clarsen in Johannesburg, Phineas Toba and Solo Fellow Pello. And I'm Nancy Richards, and uh, don't forget, if you want to pop us a mail at any stage, you're welcome. Books at safm.co.za. Or find us on Facebook, it's SAFM Literature. Easy as that. So let me tell you what we've got in the line. We've got a really uh, thumping lineup, I have to say, on the show today. Starting off with the first of our two heroes. The first is The Reactive by Masande Nshanga, winner of the Penn International New Voices Award last year. Well, The Reactive is a very original story, and it says it's about secrets, memory, chemical abuse, family, and three good friends. But we're going to be finding out a little bit more. We've got Masande right here in the studio with me. After that, hero number two is Third World Child. It's Gigi Alcock is the writer, a man whose parents, he says, gave him an upbringing to prepare him for a life in Africa, as it says on the cover of the book, Born White, Zulu Bread. Looking forward to hearing what he has to tell us. In our text feature, we're going to be hearing about the Book Dash, the aim of which is apparently to put 15,000 books into the hands of children who need them, and explaining how it works, Arthur Atwell, he's uh, the founder, I think, of Electric Bookworks. Book two, that's after the news at two o'clock, Eat, Drink and Blame the Ancestors. That's by Ndumiso Nkobo, crazy writer who is, uh, writes the Sunday Times columns that give everybody in South Africa a good laugh. He's been writing those since 2009, which is not half bad. And this is a collection of some of his best. In the bookshelf, our reader today is Enoch Kyler. And don't forget, if you've got a story or a book title that you'd like to share, or maybe you're writing a book, you can let us know. Uh, pop us a mail, books at safm.co.za. So looking forward to hearing what Enoch is recommending for us today. And talking of stories, well, our story feature today, not going to have a documentary. Instead, we're featuring a rather fabulous trilogy of three South African literary award-winning storytellers. They are Professor Zeksam Dar Nohal, Makosazana Kaba, and Sikhle Kimalo. So we'll be finding out from them what got them to become storytellers and award-winning ones at that. After the news at three in our fireside chat, Roger Webster has his own inimitable brand of storytelling. And in fact, he's going to be telling us all about war horses on the show today, which should be interesting. And our back page feature, finally, a little bit of poetry by Mac Manaka. He's a poet and a lyric, lyrical writer. And his uh, latest collection of poems is called Somewhere Inside. So we'll be looking forward to hearing that. And uh, on the subject of letting us know what you are reading or writing, books at safm.co.za is a place to let us know. And thank you very much to Richard, uh, Richard Gradner. I keep wanting to say Gardner, but in fact it's Richard Gradner, who is a Cape Town author, marketing guru, and he is going to be launching his thriller novella called Return to Lemuria. And that's happening at La Perla Bar here in Seapoint, um, Yesterday. Oh, shame. I'm so sorry, Richard, but there you go. But if you'd like to know a little bit more about his book, it's uh, set in a New York, Barbados, Mexico, and the Amazon. And it's a new and exciting dystopian thriller about the mysterious descendants of a 12,000-year-old ancient civilization intent on taking over the world. There you go. That's by Richard Gradner. So if you'd like to check it out, look at his site, richardgradner.com. Just another little bit of footnote, uh, footnote-worthy information. 
Here in Cape Town, also, there's going to be a charity book sale, a real bumper charity book sale. It's happening at St. Paul's Church in Rondebosch from Friday the 21st through until Sunday the 23rd of November. I think on Friday it starts at half past two through until 8.30, and then the, the following couple of days um, it starts at uh, 8.30 on Saturday through till 5, Sunday from... Uh, Sunday morning from 1900. I think that may be 7 o'clock in the morning, perhaps, until 1 o'clock in the morning. And interesting about this whole event is that uh, Andrew Brown is going to be in conversation with Mary Bock at uh, f uh, 7 o'clock on the Friday evening. And uh, five charities are going to be uh, benefiting from that one. That sounds really exciting. So there you are. If you would like to know anything more, the number to call is 07220. 37359 You are listening to SFM Literature. Stay with us. SFM Literature it is. So we promised you some new voices, some old voices. Well, maybe I can say established voices. Nobody wants to be an old voice, do they, particularly? So our new voice today is uh, hero number one. He's Masande Nshanga, and he's written a book called The Reactive. Well, the man himself is the winner of the 2013 Penn International New Voices Award. There you go. That's the new voices bit. He's graduated with a degree in film and media. He's an honours degree in English studies from UCT, where he became a creative writing fellow and he completed his master's in creative writing. Also received a Fulbright Award and an NRF freestanding master's scholarship. Well, certainly, I have to say, some people's CVs read like a book in themselves. It sounded <laughs> lovely to have you with us. Thank That's you, a very you. impressive lineup. Um, and here you are, a regular guy. <laughs> Having written a book, you must be very thrilled. So, on the cover of this book, you have a new voice, you have a very original voice, because on the cover of the book, no less a person than Imran Kovadia says, in sentences which swing like nobody else's in the country, Masande Nshanga sets out on a thrilling new expedition of writerly daring. So there you go, that's a nice little, uh, nice little gig there. Um, on the back of the book, it says that the book is all about secrets, memory, chemical abuse, family, and, and I put in three good friends. In your words, do you want to explain to us, give us a synopsis of your story? Well, it's about a young man in Cape Town um, who is in a process of mourning his younger brother. And it starts off with him and his uh, two friends and kind of um, takes a slice of uh, his life or his experience rather and uh, details how he comes to terms uh, with his younger brother's death. What a lot of things he has to come to terms with, in fact, are there not? He's, uh, his status, his, um, <coughs> his addictions, his, <coughs> excuse me, all the, all the various things that he's handled. In fact, it's a very strong opening line. You say, ten years ago, I helped a handful of men take my little brother's life. So I thought, Phew, where are we going with this book? <laughs> That's quite something. It's a young man in Cape Town, not a million miles from your own experience. Uh, no, it's not that removed from my experience, although I was quite aware of that uh, during the process of writing it. In fact, in the beginning, there was a lot more of uh, what I would call uh, my own experiences in the book. But during the process of writing it, uh, the characters kind of uh, took a life of their own. And the book kind of um, 
in a way rejected my own experiences mm. so it's uh it's an it's entirely linda natty's story um yeah yeah and he and he balks against his name linda natty he says why did his parents give him a girl's name for heaven's sake shame but we'll go with natty for the sake of simplicity um okay. j just going back this is presumably is the book that emerged from you having done your masters in creative writing yes it is when you started that what did you have in mind? Is, is it something that you workshop that, with somebody else to decide what the story is going to be? Or did you come up with it yourself? Uh, the book actually took form pretty late during uh, my program. Um, and it came, I, I never really got a chance to workshop it. Uh, in the beginning, it was uh, pretty different uh, from how it turned out. It was a much more kind of uh, deliberate, uh, intellectually focused work in that I knew I wanted it to be a modern novel, uh, which was kind of a meditation on a number of themes, uh, especially kind of contemporary culture um, as seen through post-apartheid. And it had the same characters, but it was much more, I suppose, detached in a way and was much more clinical in how it dealt with its subject matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you talk about it almost like an outsider. It's interesting <laughs> that you see it like that. A modern novel. What does that mean? I mean, we go back to your sentences which swing like nobody else's, and they certainly do. You might read us a little bit in just a minute, but when you say a modern novel, w w describe that. Uh, it was much more explicitly something that engaged with uh, ideas of technology media and the effects on how to kind of consolidate an identity for yourself and something that was paralleled with of course the character's consumption of drugs and his consciousness or mentation and how his thoughts and how he identified himself um, were related to like his exposure to technology and to drugs so i thought modern in that sense in any case and yeah during just um the process of working on it it was able to still deal with the same things but in a much more subtle way mm -hmm. did you have to do i mean going back to your own experiences obviously there's there's a lot of what you know and we walk down certain streets and i thought oh yeah i know this part of cape town so there's, there's that that you experience but it seems like there may have been you may have tracked some other of your buddies and sort of picked up what was going on hung out at a few clubs and parties and that sort of thing was there quite a lot of <laughs> deliberate research surprisingly no there wasn't um, a lot of deliberate research in fact uh, my process i rather prefer to kind of find my way into the story and then kind of uh, validate uh, certain facts later on during the process and i actually it's in my own understanding i feel a lot of writers perhaps most of the job is about um being able to apply yourself into creating a kind of context for the work uh just getting it writing it down and during that the context you create is for to allow when you do finally get inspired, then it can kind of just come and you've already uh, developed the tools that you need and you've already chosen your subject matter. And at, th at that point, you just allow the, the work to follow its own logic. Yeah. So. 
I often think it must be a bit like cooking. Once you've got all your ingredients lined up, then you just sort of put it all together and that's when it, it all starts to happen. And that's when you get to, to use these swinging sentences that you run. Disco, would you read us just a little bit? I mean, maybe you can just start at the beginning or decide what, whichever bit you'd like to read so that we get a sense of, of the voice and what Nati has to say. Um, how long should it be? Oh, just, a, just give us a paragraph. Make it a clean paragraph, or, or something that it's a family program, so something that we, we're okay. <laughs> okay, we'll do. Um. It was grey and anemic outside. I found a sandwich bar on the corner of Long Street, where a customer had abandoned a book of T.S. Eliot poems on a low table. Sitting with the envelope still unopened in my jacket, I looked at the many lines the poet had hunched over between 1909 and 1962, and then at the coffee table itself, where my tumbler and teapot sat empty. For a while, I listened to the rain clattering against the roofs of the cars parked outside. Then I put the book down and rubbed the moats out of my eyes. The couch beneath me was made of leather and was comfortable, and I craned my neck to see how the weather had turned outside. The rain had thickened and was bulleting down between the buildings of the city bowl, punishing the bonnets of German sports cars and the canopies of Peter delivery vans. In the gutter, it raised a soft mist that curled like theatrical fog above the tar, and I saw couples rushing hand in hand to crowd together, to, to crowd together under the canvas awnings of the bars and the cafes, the teenagers in their school uniforms, the university students with their shopping bags lifted high over their heads. In the sky above them stood the city's many scaffolds, each rising like the skeleton of a grand and incomplete beast, abandoned by the calloused hands which were meant to bring it into existence. Oh, definitely some swinging sentences there. Just going back to the, the idea of the modern novel and the, the sort of slightly outsider and the, you know, the, the moving around and witnessing all these things that are around you. Any other writers, I mean, you mentioned T.S. Eliot there, any other writers, I don't know if he was an influence, but any other writers that have uh, spoken to you that gave you an idea about finding a voice? Uh, for this novel, uh, definitely there were a few writers uh, I, whose books I kind of used as a model. Um, I was kind of very interested in a slim almost pseudo-autobiographical take, uh, just based on novels of a similar sort that I'd liked. Um, for example, Suda by Percival Everett, and also, as far as uh, the perspective of the outsider, of course, uh, The Stranger by Albert Camus. Mm. Where are you going to go from here? Because you've done other writing before you very successfully, so now this is your first novel. I bet you're thinking, yeah, she's really asking me what I'm going to do next. You, you know, this has not long been out. But uh, having completed this, are you, gonna, you know, is, has it sort of triggered you to write more? Absolutely. Mm. Um, yeah, I've already kind of started uh, working my way towards what may become my second book. Uh, but it's still very early, uh, too early to tell, in fact. But definitely the plan is to keep on writing. It's very early in your life, really. I don't know how old you are, but it's... 28. 28. It's sort of kind of early to be to be settling down to a, a career of writing. It's a very lonely business. Is there anything else that you'd rather be doing rather than writing? I mean, do you, have you got parallel lives going on? You've got something else up your sleeve as well. 
Uh, not particularly, no. Uh, mm. Although I still have an interest in film, so I'm actually talking with someone about maybe collaborating on a project, uh, possibly as a scriptwriter. Uh, they approached me uh, after the launch of my book, and they're interested in doing something. Mm. But besides that, did you did you think? I mean, as a, somebody who studied film, did you, as you were writing, did you have a sort of filmic thing going on in your mind? Were you, were you clicking away with a camera as you were writing? Strangely, no. Um, I think the two mediums for me are very different. Um, the process of writing for me is something that literally springs from the sentence level and. As, a, as opposed to kind of visualizing. Well, my Sandy, whichever way you go, whatever you do, I'm sure that writing is going to be right there at the top. It's been lovely. Thank you very Thank much. You. And very best of luck with your next book as Thank well as you. this one. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. My Sandy Nshanga, and the book is called The Reactive, and it's published by Random Strake. I'm not going to explain the title. You get yourself a copy, and then you can find out all about it. Ms. Sander, thank you very much. Thanks Take again. care. Well, you're listening to SAFM Literature here on SAFM. It was interesting to hear where people's books have come from, and I think it's really interesting to hear people read reading them as well because you know somehow you get the you get the sound of the voice as well well we're moving on to our next book it's a hero 2 book and uh, rather by contrast to the urban story in reactive this one starts off in the rural uh, rural areas of zululand it's called uh, it's called third world child and it's by gg alcock who is described as a political activist a community worker and an african adventure kind of autobiographical story and uh, on the cover of the book it says third world well, child born white and Zulu bred, and I think we got Gigi himself in our Joburg studio. Hi, Gigi. Hi. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so you're a political activist, a community worker, and an African adventurer. Um, what, what are you doing now? You've done so very many things. What are you doing now aside from writing? Uh, I, I try and spend as much time adventuring as I can, but I get dragged back to my business, which is uh, called Minanawe and focuses on communicating in the mass market. Uh, and and basically spend a lot of time in the township and rural markets. So tell me, okay, let's go. Let's sort of go with the book now. Here, um, what triggered you to write this book? Now you talk about your story. Your parents are having. Your parents are key in your life. Um, you talk about them having raised you as uh, somebody who was prepared for a life in Africa. Why did you decide to write this book now? Sure. I'm not sure about why now. Uh, why mm. I, I wrote the book was, uh, well, I started, I wanted my, my children to share in, in the story, but kind of looking at the events and the, and the kind of political scenario in the country at the moment, uh, a lot of it was about trying to move on from kind of typical black and white scenarios and, and, and uh, understand kind of deeper what the kind of cultural dynamics and, and elements in an African environment were as, as, as I grew up with, with this kind of quite unique uh, perspective. So I really wanted to share that and, and move beyond kind of hand-wringing um, apartheid stories and, uh, and, and typical kind of black versus white kind of stories. It would be interesting to know how you're bringing up your child, seeing as your parents had very specific ideas about bringing you, you and your brother up. Tell us, tell us a little bit about your background, your childhood, and your parents. So my parents uh, gave up fairly successful lives um, in kind of as, as in farmers. My mother was a journalist, and and uh, 
basically found the worst possible place in a- Africa uh, to settle and to change people's lives um, and, and basically to do this they believed that they should live just like the people so that whatever they did with the people was an example of what was possible and um, so they built a, a mud hut in the middle of Zululand um, in a place called Msinga among the Mkunu and the Mtembu tribes and, and basically we were brought up as Zulu kids. My mother taught us at home, and um, we, um, after after doing school under the acacia tree at a rock table, we would go out and herd goats and, and uh, stick fight and do whatever typical Zulu kids uh, did. And, and basically, we were, for all intents and purposes, young Zulu children. Did your parents speak Zulu? I mean, I know that you and your brother both speak um, very excellent, uh, fluent Zulu, but did your parents as well when they got that? Uh, my mother didn't, but my father was always very fluent, and in fact, that's what led him there. That uh, in many ways, his uh, he, he identified far closer to the people who brought him up, who were Zulu, than than to the white uh, farmers who he lived amongst. And and uh, so he spoke Zulu. He spoke to us in Zulu, and and uh, we grew up with my mother teaching us uh, English and and struggling to get us to pronounce English um, in a proper yeah. way. We we used to talk about things like the moon and. Instead of the moon and stuff, and uh, but uh, yeah, so my my mother uh, had that kind of English side. My father spoke Zulu and and spoke to us in Zulu and and kind of insisted that the local community treated us as as Zulus. Tell us about your dad. Uh, he was a very very special man. Uh, Nomzan, the, the the local guys called him. Tell us about him. Uh, he he was. Um, he had a very strong sense of of right and wrong, and um, and and. He, uh, you know, went to this place to to kind of first of all teach people about agriculture, and then quite quickly realised that the reality of the situation was that uh, greater kind of, if you want, apartheid elements, forced removals, and those kind of things dictated that uh, people were kind of trapped in this poverty and, and the local police were, were torturing and abusing people, the local farmers were treating people like slaves. So he get, got dragged quite quickly into into trying to address things on a kind of more activist level, I guess. Um, and um, but but had this um, it could create huge hope among people, and these were people with very little hope, you know, who who, who were in this arid, hopeless place. Uh, and and he inspired people to believe that that there was more possible, and and uh, spent a lot of his time uh, creating this hope and 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 fighting for people's rights on, on both uh, um, uh, you know on, on both sides and, and I think one of the things that he struggled with a lot of the time was that he was very conscious of being white and and had friends who, who were white and, and had the same thing with the black community and and trying to really be in the middle of these without taking one or the other side. And, uh, you know, without giving anything away, uh, the tragic fact of, of the matter is that he he was killed quite, I think you were 14, 14, 15? Yeah, I was 14 and uh, he was basically um, what uh, I believe was assassinated mm. because of the work he was doing. He was... Uh, uh, um, uh, what's uh, negotiating a peace between various tribal groups and um, Msinga is a kind of center of dacha growing and and because of it they they got the they were able to purchase uh AK47s and R1s and this was probably the most violent and and uh well-armed community in Africa and um 
at the time, you know, these tribes were, were uh, I mean, in, in the, at night we used to sit having supper on the floor of the, of the hut we lived in with uh, the tracer rounds going through the air and, and uh, we, at a very young age, could identify different rifles. Oh, that was an R1 and that was an FN and whatever. Um, and um, so, you know, at the time the, the police feeling was really if they killed each other they won't be killing us so they kind of let this all happen and my father was trying to to get uh, peace between these different groups and and um on one event returning home from from a peace meeting uh, they were ambushed him and, and a number of local tribesmen and uh, he was shot uh, and uh, along with some some of the local tribesmen um yeah yeah yeah, that's a hell of a story. We're talking to Gigi Alcock, who's going to explain his name just now. Gigi Alcock, who's written a book called Third World Child, which Rian Milan describes as astonishing. Alcock has written the first report from the next South Africa. Um, Gigi, just before we get on to your name, I, we, we're talking about your father's death at a time when you were very young. You were, you had a younger brother, Konya. But it had a huge impact on, on you, certainly on your mother, and on the community. Just, just explain the impact. Well, well, you know, my father had come to represent a, a challenge against uh, people who were, who were abusing or, or, uh, or taking advantage of local people. And suddenly with him being killed, I think there was a whole sense in this valley that all hope was now gone. And um, the only person who stood between them and these uh, people who were, who were taking advantage in many ways um, was, was suddenly gone. And that, of course, uh, he, uh, you know, we were going to leave. My mother was going to leave and we were going to go. Um, but instead, my mother chose to stay and we chose to stay. And, um, you know, my father had always said, uh, when, when I was a lot younger, I asked him if uh, he would send me to university, my brother and I to university. And, of course, we were dirt poor. And he said, no, I'll never be able to send you to university. But I've, I'll bring you up ready for life in Africa. And uh, that's really in many ways what he did, you know, we were able to, to survive in, in a very harsh environment and then moving from there into the, first of all, I was a political activist and then later as a, as a business person, my business focuses on, on um, operating in Africa and, and have become very successful in this environment. But we were brought up with these kind of mix of skills that, uh, that he left us with and half of them were understanding the culture and the language and you know many people speak speak Zulu and in KZN many farmers we we went one beyond in the sense that we were completely immersed we were brought up like this culturally in every way and so we had those kind of skills and then on the other hand we had the good skills of Zulu warriors when I moved to Joburg um, we had our vehicles hijacked in my business and and of course very quickly got a hold of my homeboys from Msinga and went into the townships and recovered our vehicles and uh, gave a few hijackers a few slaps and stuff. And so. that is one hairy story I have to <laughs> say. And that's not the only hairy story. I mean your, your Zulu skills um, came to came to the fore on more than one occasion and, and it's, as did your Zulu language but I'm just thinking you talk about you being dirt poor. You were rich in culture but poor in possessions but as kids you know actually that that wasn't always terrific for you guys i think at one point you and your brother were were schlepped off to school whether you liked it or not from under the tree you had to go to school and it was it was tough because you the two of you were really poor you would eat anything that came your way um did, did you ever feel resentful of your as it were inverted commas poverty 
Look, there's no glamour in poverty. You know? It's all easy to, to look at it and think there's some sort of dignity and stuff in, in, uh, in dirt poverty like that. But I don't think there is. Was I resentful? No. I mean, I think we had a wonderful life. I mean, I tried in the book to tell a lot of this, the adventures and the yeah. fun. I mean, we, we really had these the, this life as, as children that was, was so full of adventure and, and experiences and uh, um, that uh, we we, had, we were lucky in that sense. Uh, I think what we you know being forced to go to a white school uh, where we, um, we we were kind of sharing dormitories with some of the uh, kind of farmers' sons and and police sons who who resented us quite strongly. That was that was the part that I think we we struggled with. And and uh, to make it worse, we arrived there incredibly poor. We weekends we went back to to the. Uh, to 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 the place where we you know to home where we washed in the river and and of course we had these white school shirts and we'd wash them in the brown together and they'd come out browner than than before we arrived and we'd arrive at school and we'd get into trouble because we didn't have clean shirts and stuff so you know those are the elements I think we struggled with um, but I think also that poverty kind of drove us also to to move beyond that to. To uh, you know, a, a, a better appreciation of of um, possessions and and the richness of life. And I mean, looking back on it now, the richness of the communities and 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 still the communities I interact with is quite special. And I tried to share that in the book. You know, this amazing place where where we look at you know the townships and the rural areas. And yes, life's hard there, but there's also incredible stories and humour and and. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of hope in that environment. Just going back to what your parents said about preparing you for a life in Africa, and it's lovely that your your dad said, "Look, sorry, can't afford you to send to university, but I'm going to do the best I can on this side," which which he certainly did. Did they prepare you for a life in Africa, or did they set you apart from other your own, as it were, tribe? Do, do you sometimes feel round peg, square hole? No, you know, I think one of the amazing things is that uh, my brother and I are able to, to. I mean, we like uh, cultural chameleons, you know, we we shift between one culture and another with incredible ease, you know, it doesn't take long and, and I'm in a township environment and, and people don't see the colour because I'm part of it and um, and then I can be in a in a, call it white society and, and for, you know, those who don't know our history, um, I could just be another white boy from, you know, uh, so, and, and in fact, I have a lot of wonderful stories because, uh, you know, I have this thing where, where people look at me and I'm very white and, and, uh, then I start speaking Zulu and they can't believe it. You know, one of st- a story I love is, um, my daughter Zandi, who's, uh, called Zandi, although she's very blonde and, and blue eyed and she, um, so a waitress asked her the other day, said to her, um, why are you called Zandi? And and she said, no, because my father is Zulu. Because for Zandi, my, you know, I'm Zulu. And uh, this waitress came over and spoke to me in Zulu and very quickly was quite shocked at my Zulu and said, you, you are Zulu. But she says, but you, and she was looking at me and trying to work out, um, you know, what, uh, I didn't look colored, you know. And uh, she said, uh, but are you Zulu? So I said, yes, my mother. I was just joking. My mother's mum, Velasi, was in Makunwini and I was telling her the story. And um, she kept looking at me. She says, but yo, yo, you don't look colored. So I said, no, I'm colored. But you know, us colored, some are white and some are black. You must see my brother. He's pitch black. And she said, oh, shame, your poor brother. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a thing. Tell us a little bit about your brother, Konya, because um, he's also got a Zulu name. But there's one point in the book where, where the two of you go back home, as it were, and, and you say, 
Konya is my dad. He's just like your father reincarnate. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, well, Konya means uh, uh, Konya is in, in Zulu. You named after characteristic or an event. Um, Konya was named Makonya because a bull that bellows Konyas, and and uh, when you meet him, he's he's very loud and very big, and 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 uh, he uh, he now lives in in uh, the same place where we grew up, and uh, he spends his time doing the community work that uh, my parents started. Um, but very different because, uh, I, you know, when, when we were there, people were being forced off the land. And, and our, my name, uh, you, you alluded to earlier, I was named after an event, which was the government vehicles forcing people off the land. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I often say I'm the first personalized number plate because I was named after the GG um, number plate. Um, in Zulu, you know, it's Iskaska uh, GG. In fact, there was a Johnny Clegg song um, which went... Uh, which is basically Gigi doesn't care about us he throws us off the land and, and people used to sing this to me as a child but anyway um, my parents were fighting forced removals and of course uh, in a complete transformation my brother um, has been part of, of the land restoration program where people are moving back onto the land that they were forced forced out of when we were babies and uh, working with people to, to use that land correctly through uh, things like Nguni um, cattle programs, uh, really getting people who were thrown off land to, to farm the land that, that they now have rightfully uh, received and, and moved back onto. Mm. Interesting. Uh, what I didn't mention about your, um, yeah, thank you for, for explaining your name. It's such a wonderful story. And I, I'm sure there have been times when you thought, oof, this has been a tough one. Uh, one thing I didn't mention about your mother is that all this while she was raising the two of you um, living as as they were your folks were and she was devastated when your father died but all this time she was running a very very successful beadwork project with the women in the area selling stuff all over the world yeah yeah and she's still running it now it's really? um, she's she's started i think when i was born and um it's now almost 50 years old which uh, shows how old i'm getting but um what's it called uh, the, well, the, the project is called Mtugajani, and um, it's quite interesting. Mtugajani means the place of lost grass, and my parents named uh, Mtugajani. My father said, we'll call it Mtugajani because uh, in, in a few years' time, the place will be full of grass, and there'll be grass waving, and people will be saying, um, will be saying, why did you call it the place of lost grass? And we'll be able to tell them that there never was any grass when, when we started. But uh, it's called Mtugajani, um, and, and my mother runs this bead project, and it's quite crazy, you know, you have these tribal ladies in stolos, which are these uh, headdresses and strabas, um, leather skirts, sitting uh, among these red rocks in, uh, in, 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 in and uh, acacia thorn trees and um, making these beautiful, very fashionable, high glossy um, bead um, art, um, um, things like earrings and, mm. and necklaces and stuff. And, and these aren't the kind of, um, you know, tribal stuff that's sold on the beachfront. These are, are, are things of high fashion. Mm. In mm. fact, at one stage they made uh, some ne um, necklaces and earrings for the Yves Saint Laurent um, uh, a fashion week and um, so they went from these ladies with tolos and, and uh, massive uh, massive holes in their ears where they have these large wooden discs and, and uh, they made these necklaces and, and earrings which went on to slim little 
uh, models in Paris. You know, it's quite a crazy thing. But and, and they make this the, the, also um, gold vases and uh, mm. uh, baskets and stuff. Very beautiful stuff. Um, incongruous in, in a sense to the environment in which they are. Well, I have to say the book is full of incongruities. There's a wonderful story about the lady who came from, I think, from the States and your mother took her into the rural areas and there was one of the gogos who said, no, 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 this lady's got a long journey to go all the way home. She has to have a chicken. That is the most spectacularly interesting story. It's, it's uh, you know, I still laugh about it. I mean, that story is about Fiona and, and uh, this lady had prepared a chicken and, and uh, Fiona had to race back to the area plane and and uh, they were walking to the ferry boat on the Tugela River and this lady came running with a live chicken and said I'm sorry you can't uh, come to my house because you haven't got enough time please take this chicken and and uh, my mother said uh, she can't take the chicken because they um, won't allow a live chicken on the aeroplane. So the lady quickly wrung its neck and gave her <laughs> a dead chicken and said I'm sure they'll accept this on the aeroplane. Lots of things to laugh about and lots of things to cry about. It's certainly one hell of a book. Third World Child, Gigi, thank you so much. Very best of luck. I'm sure there'll be more where that came from. Thank you. Thank Take you very care. much. Gigi Alcock, he's written Third World Child, Born White, Zulu Bread, and it's published by Tracy MacDonald Publishing. You're listening to SFM Literature here on SAFM. Don't forget, if you want to get in touch with us and tell us your story, always interested in unbelievable stories. Isn't South Africa just filled with stories? It's books at safm.co.za. SAFM Literature here on SAFM. Well, around about this time, we talk in our text feature about anything at all to do with writing and how it all comes together. And we're coming together now with Book Dash. Um, Book Dash, if you don't know what it is, you're about to find out. But the, one of the aims is book, of Book Dash is that it's, it's going to put 15,000 books into the hands of children who need them. Well, here to explain how that's going to work, how we're going to put that equation together, is Arthur Atwell, who's the, uh, the big man behind the Electric Book Works. Lovely to have you with us, Arthur. Thanks so much. Thanks once again. I think last time you spoke, uh, you were telling us all about Paperwrite, which was a, a fabulous idea. But let's not digress. Mm -hmm. we, can, we can always uh, give details of that another day. Book Dash. Book Dash is what? Book Dash is a movement really. Uh, technically it's an organization but it's a movement of creative professionals who are creating books for young children that anyone can freely download, distribute, uh, translate and print and give away copies of. Uh, Very quickly. Absolutely. I mean as in the title Book Dash right. Absolutely. How does it work? So what we, what we do, first of all, to create these books is that we get creative volunteers, creative professionals who volunteer their time for bookmaking marathons. They're 12-hour days. They start at 9 in the morning. They work till 9 at night. And they work in little teams, writer, illustrator, designer, and each team produces a finished children's book in a day. And what's really special about these particular books is that they are available for anyone in the world to freely download, translate, print and distribute. And the reason that we did this is because there are lots of wonderful literacy organizations in South Africa and abroad who are trying to give books to children. But as long as they're having to buy them from publishers, they're paying a lot of money for them because they're covering all the publishers' other overheads. In the case of BookDash, the volunteers are doing all the work of publishers and it means that the only cost for the book is the printing. And so far, our BookDash volunteers have produced uh, 22 beautiful books. Already a dozen of them are on our site ready to download. And uh, now our job is to 
get them printed in, into the hands of kids. When you say the only cost is the printing, I mean, can somebody going onto your website, can they print it out for themselves? Absolutely, yeah. And, and then just staple it together or do whatever they do or get it bound in whatever way? Yes, absolutely, and that's part of the idea. When we organise the printing of the books, we make sure that we produce really beautiful, high-quality editions. As in the ones that you've got here? Yes. So here we have some examples of the, the books that we've produced so far. And it's really important to the book dashes that if we're giving children uh, free books, that they must be high-quality books. Mm. There's something amazingly magical about a book. Um, as my co-founder have said uh, to me once, a book just wants to fall open and be read. And that's the thing about a beautiful book. Uh, the beautiful paper, lovely covers, beautiful colors, uh, great typography and beautiful illustration, uh, it all comes together in this, this way that makes yeah. people uh, just feel a certain yeah. little spark. You know, it's, it sort of turns on its head the whole concept of writing a book, of taking a long time, and, uh, you know, both the authors that we've spoken to are quite certain they took a very long time. Okay, we're talking about children's books here, but it, uh, even a child's book doesn't mean that it's got to be sort of zapped off quick, quick. You, you know, one wants to spend a bit of time and energy. So when, they, when these guys get together, these creative professionals, the writer and the illustrator and the designer, and I'm looking at the illustrations here and I'm thinking, gee, that's not half bad to put together in 12 hours. <laughs> Um, from scratch, I mean, does anybody have the, the, the germ of an idea when, it, when they get together? Or do they workshop the concept and then, right, ready, steady, off you go? Well, for some of the teams, when they arrive at 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, it's the first time they've ever met. But we do help them prepare. Uh, so Is a theme? Or? Sometimes there's a theme. In our most recent book, Dash, uh, all the teams created biographies of great African women, inspiring African women. Uh, we did 10 biographies of people like Miriam Makeba and Albertina Sisulu and several others. Uh, and in other book dashes we've run, there's been no particular theme. We've left it open for the teams. But what we do require is that the writers and illustrators do a little bit of prep work. A lot of the kind of imagination, story-building work of any book is done in those quiet moments when you're out for a walk or in the bath. And you get a ding. Like yes, absolutely. Mm. And, and so that happens in the lead-up to a book dash. We also ask the writers to develop an outline in advance that can go to the illustrator and they can think up some character sketches and arrive in the morning ready to go. So there is an amount of, of prep work. Uh, but it's important for us if we're asking uh, busy people to give a lot of time that we contain the amount of time we're asking them to give. But what's extraordinary is how much can be done in 12 hours and how beautiful these books are at the end of that. Sometimes we do a little bit of work after the, after the day. Sometimes illustrators need a, a day or two to finish off an illustration uh, or a designer needs some time to tweak some production. Sort of but a post-production, mm. absolutely. But really the bulk of the work is done in that incredible creative burst. You know, if, when you put 40 creative people together in a room, now we usually have these book dashes at the Cape Town Central Library, which is an amazing venue to have these, these events happen. The energy in that room is just astonishing and everyone really clubs together. We, we call it the Comrades Marathon of Creativity. <laughs> and I'm sure I would imagine there's a fair element of competition. You know, how, how are those three getting on over there? You know, uh, we've got to make sure that ours is going to be really good. Is there that as well? Yeah, our facilitators uh, encourage it a little bit. <laughs> it's not explicit competition, but we make sure that everyone knows how everyone else is getting along mm -hmm. and how, how quickly people have to work. 12 hours, and the books all have at least 12 illustrations. So we, the illustrators are churning out an illustration every hour, and that's hard work. And so we make sure people are well-fed, um, full of coffee, uh, and and full of uh, 
encouragement. Yeah, yeah. Can I just go, take you back to the 10 um, women from Africa books, which, uh, you know, never mind post-production, there would need to be some pre-production or, or sort of uh, during present production. Did access to Google? Because it's something like that. You know, Albertina Sisulu, Maria Makeba, you, you, need the, you need the stuff, and there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah, we did a lot of preparation for mm. that book, Dash. Uh, we spoke to historians, writers, academics about who we should be covering. Uh, we drew together a lot of source material. One of our, our uh, team members, um, uh, Liz Sparg, who was the writer on the team that did a biography of the Paralympic athlete Zanella Situ, uh, tracked down Zanella. It took a, a few days and, uh, in fact, a couple of weeks, I think, eventually went out and met her out in Stellenbosch and interviewed her. And, and that produced the most amazing book. But Liz put a lot of research work into that in advance. Uh, and uh, so the teams were given quite a bit of time to prep, and some, t some of them were able to put quite a lot of preparation into those books. And it was really important. Um, also, on the day, we provide ed editors to work with the teams, ex very experienced publishing editors. And they were extremely important on that day in terms of helping the writers move through. It's a very difficult process. Some of these women's lives were very hard and dark and, and tragic. And how do you tell that in a, a children's book aimed at six-year-olds? Uh, and that was hard work, uh, but I think what came out is very special. Mm -hmm. How many how many thousand words, or how many um, hundreds of words? <laughs> <laughs> it varies a lot from book to book. Uh, so, a book like uh, "Come Back Cat" or "Kom uh, in this edition we have here uh, probably only has about uh, forty or fifty words mm. in it. Whereas uh, the biographies, some of them had a lot more detail. The yeah. biography of, of Albertina Sisulu is probably six or seven hundred words, uh, but still always aiming at at children really anything between the ages of 1 and 10 uh, yeah. uh, the books we've produced so far. Just give us the logistics then. I mean, thinking about the, the 10 women's books and I am going to give out your website because I'm sure people are thinking, oh, I'd be interested to see those, not least moi. <laughs> um, so if you, if you, uh, you, you've got it on your site, how many do you print yourselves and sell, presumably, or give? And how many get downloaded and do you know how many people are downloading? We do have stats. Uh, to be honest, I haven't checked in a while because uh, BookDash is volunteer-driven, us included, and we don't have a lot of time to track these things. Mm. But I know that they've been downloaded several hundred times when I last looked, and they've only been on the site for a couple of months. Uh, we print when someone comes along and says we have some money to print books. So we've recently been able to print several hundred books with Rock Girl, which is a fantastic local mm. nonprofit creating safe spaces for girls and boys in Cape Town. And uh, they co-hosted the, uh, the event where we created the biographies and have now printed a number of uh, copies of those and we'll be giving them out over the next uh, couple of months. Uh, and what we're doing right now is we're crowdfunding a big print run. And uh, that'll be really important in terms For of which particular books, books. We're going to be printing all of the books we've produced so far, and in several languages. So when we say we're we're raising money for fifteen thousand books, that will be a combination of the books we've produced in different languages. Okay, that, there we go to the, the 15,000 books. We're going to find out a little bit more about that in just a minute. We're talking to Arthur Atwell, and we're talking about Book Dash. Stay with us.
here on SFM Literature, we're talking about getting books into children's hands. We're talking about getting 15,000 books into children's hands, talking to Arthur Atwell, who's the director of Electric Bookworks, talking about Book Dash. Now, the point about this is that we all want to get uh, books into children's hands, but actually we can all take a part in this. So whether you're in Cape Town, whether you're not one of the creative professionals, you can actually put some money towards this crowdfunding. You're doing it through Thunder Fund. What's the deal? What do you have to do? Well, simple enough. Go to thunderfund.com and uh, our project's right there, Book Dash, and you can pay an amount towards the project, towards funding books for children. And the way that crowdfunding works is that uh, depending how much you pay, there are different uh, rewards, uh, rewards mm. that you that you get. Of course, Do most of our rewards is the is the personal reward of of, <laughs> of feeling good about yeah. having given books to little kids. Uh, but you can also buy a book for yourself. So uh, the cheapest way to contribute is to buy your own copy for 120 rand. That of course funds other books to to kids, but uh, but for the price of what you'd pay in a bookstore for a children's book and these really are beautiful books and you get to pick which one of the one yeah. of the books that we've so produced uh, how much is it going to cost i mean you've got a thunder fund campaign going so it's bookdash.org forward slash thunderfund.com uh, bookdash.org is our website yeah and then or you can go direct to the thunder fund okay yeah. is there a link on your there's website? a link, link yeah. both ways um so if you uh, how much is it going to cost you to, how much are you looking to raise? That's we need to raise. We're aiming at raising two hundred thousand rand. Mm. Uh, we need to raise at least fifty thousand rand to keep the money. That's what uh, Thunder yeah, Fund calls the tipping, tipping point. point yeah. If we get our tipping point, then uh, then that money uh, goes towards the project. And with fifty with fifty thousand rand, we can print several thousand books and and give them to children. We're working with a number of local literacy organisations to give those directly to children. And that's what's really, really important about this campaign and about everything Book Dash does is that we believe that children need to own their own books. Yeah. We love libraries and they're fantastic, but there's something completely different for a child about owning a book, being able to sit at home uh, and and reread it a hundred times. And at the front of every book, there's a page that asks this book belongs to, and we write the name of the child that we give the book to in every case. I love it. Really love it. Important. 50,000 Rand is your tipping point. How are you doing so far? Because I think your cutoff is December 15. Yeah, I think we've just hit 30,000 Rand. We've okay. got some time to go, so uh, we're confident of hitting the tipping point. Uh, people are getting on board every day, and uh, and there are num people who contribute in very different ways. Uh, while 120 Rand is the cheapest way to be involved, uh, one can put in 300 Rand and and uh, that gives 10 books to children and we've got people who are buying original art from book dash events for 3000 rand and that gives 50 books to children and you get this beautiful piece of art to so why wouldn't you do it there you go check out the site bookdash.org bookdash.org and just help put some of those books into those kids hands otherwise go straight to thunderfund.com going to give you all those details later on but arthur lovely thank you very much strength keep up the good work it's been it's been a lot of work but it's going to be really really worthwhile lovely thank you. take care Arthur Atwell, Director of Electric Book Works, but check the site, please. It's bookdash.org, bookdash.org.